So I've been a little sick this past week, so my singing voice isn't quite up to, uh, up to snuff today. So I'm really going to have to disappoint you today and just read these words instead of um, singing them. But you can imagine. <clears throat> my character is spit, spot, spick, and span. I'm practically perfect in every way. Practically perfect, so people say. Each virtue virtually knows no bound. Each trait is great and patently sound. I'm practically perfect from head to toe. If I had a fault, it would never dare to show. Both prim and proper and never too stern. Well-educated yet willing to learn. I'm clean and honest, my manner refined. And I wear shoes of the sensible kind. I suffer no nonsense, and whilst I remain, there's nothing else I feel I need to explain. I'm practically perfect in every way. Practically perfect, that's my forte. Uncanny nannies are hard to find, unique yet unspeakably kind. I'm practically perfect, not slightly soiled, running like an engine that's just been freshly oiled. I'm so practically perfect in every way. All right, who knows the song? Who knows who it's about? The nanny is a big giveaway. Mary Poppins, that's right. Come on, say it when you know them. Mary Poppins. All right. Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Our heresy today has to do with perfection, in particular, the perfection of the clergy. Indeed, at one point in the church's history, this was an active debate. Should the clergy be held to different standards than others? And if they are seen to be morally lacking in some way, does that invalidate their ministry? Or are the sacraments they administer somehow corrupted? Because there is no pastoral equivalent to Mary Poppins, the church mercifully decided that this was a heresy. And I joked with Meg that this ought to be a really easy sermon. Just name the heresy, point to myself, and say, obviously, it did not catch on. <laughs> and yet I suspect that this <clears throat> preoccupation with purity is more enduring than we care to admit. Our reading today comes from the letter 1 John, chapter 1. Before we read, though, I'll invite you to pray with me. <clears throat> In the reading of these words that point to you, the living word, speak to us fresh insights for the living of these days. We pray this in the name of Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the year 303, the Roman Emperor Diocletian declared a persecution of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. Now, as you might imagine, in something as large and unwieldy as the Roman Empire, his edicts were carried out with varying degrees of enthusiasm, depending on where they were. So in the North African province, the governor was content to let the priests and the bishops just just hand over their holy writings. That's it. No need for senseless bloodshed. Just hand over the holy writings and let's move on. Well, in time, that persecution ended and the right for Christians to worship as they wished was restored. But the seeds of a deep conflict had already been sown in the church. Not everyone was keen to welcome those who betrayed Christ by handing over the holy writings. They certainly were not keen to invite them right back into their former positions of authority. Some began to call those those clergy traditores, Sounds like traitor. They had betrayed Christ by handing over the Holy Scriptures. And to this emerging group of hardline purists, this level of betrayal put you in the same company as Judas. It permanently disqualifies one from church leadership, they said, and any sacrament performed by a traditor, they were seen as invalid. Now, the powder keg really blew up in 311 when a new bishop was installed in Carthage, Bishop Felix, who was an alleged tradador himself. This emerging sect refused to accept the leadership of Bishop Felix, and they installed Donatus Magnus as a rival true bishop in his place because Donatus had never renounced his faith. This is how the sect came to be known as the Donatists. So that's the brief history of our heresy for today, but let's explore why it matters. There's a quote that makes the rounds and is often attributed to St. Augustine of Hippo, who was the church's chief critic of Donatism. And the quote is this, the church is not a museum for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. Let's hear it one more time. The church is not a museum for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. Now, you are not going to find anything remotely sounding like that in the writings of Augustine. But it is a folksy summation of what was at stake with the Donatist controversy. Will the church be a hall for champions to be installed on their pedestals and admired from a distance, 
practically perfect in every way? Or will the church be the place that offers shelter to those who have failed? And I think most of us would agree that the church should be that hospital for sinners, a, a healing place for those who try and fail. But Donatism, Donatism focused specifically on the church's clergy, which begs the question, do we or should we have different standards for the leaders of the church? It's a good, honest question. When we were finishing seminary, Meg was serving this church just outside Richmond, and she took the high school students to Montreat Youth Conference, and I decided I would tag along. They were a really great group of young people and the advisors I really liked, and my friend Jen was going to be the keynote speaker that week. In middle of that week, Jen told this story from her own adolescence in South Carolina. She grew up in a town with two different sides, literally separated by train tracks. And she loved playing basketball, so she, she tried out for the high school team and she made the team. And that put her in relationship with a number of the black students who lived on the other side of the tracks. Jen went on to describe how fun it was to develop these new friendships and to bond as a team. But then it all became terribly complicated when there was this full-blown race riot in the community of her upbringing during her junior year of high school. Suddenly, being the white girl with a foot in the black world was a very tense place to be. And she explained how her white friends began to say things to her, the kinds of things that, that made her feel shame for having friendships across the color line. And then Jen confessed to this room of 1,200 or so people that she had a failure of courage. She did not defend her new friends from the team or the community that they come from. In fact, she quit the team. and She fell in line with what was expected of her as a white girl in a South Carolina town with a pair of train tracks running down the middle. Now, to me, it was this really stunning and really beautiful and really painful moment of confession. I, I marveled at how courageous she was to share this about herself. And then later that night, we were back at our home and we were unpacking what we'd heard that day. And this student, Jackson, he was this goofy redheaded kid you could not help but adore. Jackson said, I did not like that story she told about folding under pressure and quitting the basketball team. I mean, what kind of a lesson is that? You're supposed to be inspiring us, not telling us about your failures. And that familiar question was staring at us. 
Is the church a museum for the saints, or is it a hospital for sinners? I think about a friend and colleague in the church, a wonderful pastor, a really marvelous preacher, who after much therapy, after much soul-searching, made the very difficult decision to end his marriage. The blowback he received from the congregation that he still serves was significant. One member angrily confronted him and said, your divorce has completely destabilized my marriage. And another came at him furious because he was set to officiate their daughter's wedding later that spring, as if the marriage ceremony would somehow be compromised by the marital status of the pastor presiding. You know, that's precisely what the Donatists suggested, more about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. If the Lord's Supper was officiated by a traditor, that it was somehow tainted, that it was incapable of conferring God's grace to the recipients. You know, Augustine may not have said that thing about the church being a hospital for sinners, but he did articulate that the grace conferred in the Lord's Supper, it never has anything to do with the holiness of the one standing behind the table. If that were true, then no sacrament would ever stand. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. You know, it's really a deeper question than whether so-and-so is fit to preside at the table. I think if you dig down, what we're really talking about is who that table is for. Is it really open to everyone? Is there room enough for all, even even those who betray their Lord. There's this old story about Judas. It's not biblical, but it says that after his death, he found himself at the bottom of a deep and slimy pit. And for thousands of years, he wept his repentance. And when the tears were finally all spent, he looked up, And he saw way, way up a glimmer of light, tiny glimmer of light. And after he had contemplated that light for a few centuries, he began to climb towards the light. Of course, the walls of the pit were slimy, so he kept slipping back down. One time he almost, he got so close to the top, but he slipped and fell all the way back down. It took him many years to recover but eventually he started to climb again. After many more falls, after many more failures, he finally reached the top, and he dragged himself up over the edge, and then he fell onto the floor of an upper room with 12 people seated around the table. And then he heard the voice of Jesus say to him, We've been waiting for you, Judas. We could not begin without you. Now, friends, you are not going to find anything, anything remotely like that in the pages of Scripture. 
But you know, it might be a good folksy summation of the gospel itself. A good folksy summation of a love that, well, is practically perfect in every way, even when we are not. Thanks be to God. Amen.